Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to Empowering Family Caregiver Show on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Meghna Giridhar, your host for today's show sponsored by eCareDiary.com. Today we will discuss finding meaning with caregiving. To help shed light on this, I'm very pleased to introduce our distinguished guest, Janet Edmondson. Janet is an inspirational speaker, writer, and health promotion professional. She has over 30 years' experience in the health promotion field. She retired in 2007 as director of the Prevention and Wellness Center at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. While working full-time, Janet took care of her husband, Charles, during the five years he fought an atypical Parkinsonian disorder. Janet wrote about her experience in her book, Finding Meaning with Charles. Janet, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's just jump to it because we have a fantastic interview lined up and I'm, I can't wait to uh, you know, dig deeper into this topic that we're going to be talking about because I think it's going to be very relevant to our audience members who are going through you know, challenging times with their own family. Um, I understand that your late husband, Charles, had a movement disorder with dementia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So Charles was actually diagnosed. It took about three years to get the diagnosis, which is always frustrating, but it was an atypical Parkinsonian disorder, um, which means it looked like Parkinson's. It had a lot of Parkinson's symptoms, but it wasn't Parkinson's. Uh, We really didn't know to the autopsy exactly what it was. It ended up being a rare uh, atypical Parkinson's disease called cortical basal degeneration, CBD. Um, Charles's first symptom started when he was 45, which is really young because this is a disease that usually hits people in their 60s and 70s. And it was a five-year progression, uh, so he died at the uh, age of 50. And, And again, that's much more aggressive than Parkinson's. And just so people know what we were dealing with, he had the movement part of his disorder included things such as being very rigid and having balance problems. He had problems with fine motor movements. And this really affected the movement of his eyes. So he sort of lost where he was in space. He could see, but he sort of didn't know exactly where he was. And then it affected his cognition uh, started out with not being able to find words. He eventually, very early on, couldn't do math, simple math, and he was a had two master's degrees uh, degrees and um, coursework in a PhD. So he's a very smart guy. So, uh, salutatorian of his high school, or valedictorian actually of his high school class. But he struggled with processing thoughts. Uh, the executive function of his brain, the judgment part of his brain, was affected. He had depression and anxiety. So he unfortunately had a disease that has similar components to Parkinson's and similar components to Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. What was your biggest challenge in this journey? The biggest challenge I thought was the, the dementia components of the disease. And I'll just share the most challenging story um, from our experience. But I have to give a little background. Early in the disease, um, Charles uh, developed a poem that he said to me uh, at night, every night when we went to bed, and it developed over time, but eventually was, I love my Janet, my pretty little gentle Janet. The love of my life is Janet, my wife. I love you so, 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 so much multiplied. 
I'm very proud of the person you are. The best thing that ever happened to me is you. So I knew that Charles truly did love me, and this was going into about a year into the disease. Mm -hmm. But with the side effects of the drugs and the disease itself, who knows exactly what, things were changing. And it started out really cute. He started out Mm -hmm. every time he had a female nurse or caregiver, an aide, just look up and say, I love you. But then one day he looked at me, and this was when he could hardly speak clearly. Uh, He was losing Mm -hmm. his speech, but this came out really clear. And he looked at me and he said, I love Dee Dee. Now, Dee Dee was the caregiver that was with him four days a week, eight hours a day. So Mm -hmm. he felt that he was in love with Dee Dee. So this was really hard, and it's it's something that I have to keep remembering that it was the disease and not Charles. I have to keep remembering that Charles did love me, but that the disease changed things and be mad at the disease. And I also need to remember that for me to get through, I needed to reflect on the love that we had and remember that love and recite that poem and know that that poem existed and before uh, he couldn't write anymore, he had actually typed that poem up, which I have right over my desk even now, even though I've remarried. Uh, Charles died in 2000. But those emotional things are really, to me, the hardest in dealing with a, a chronic illness. That's that's really, really tough. I can imagine a lot of people going through the same experiences, and it's it's just, um, I can imagine how overwhelming that must have been. So during this extremely tough caregiving experience, what strategies did you follow to remain positive and upbeat, if if that's possible at all? Yeah, I do think it is possible, but I think it's a mindset. So I, I just knew that I didn't want to do the alternative, which was to spiral into depression. I mean, I felt that very fine line to where I was, if I crossed it, I was just going to just be sucked right down. So I consciously, again, mindset, but at that time I was saying I just consciously just tried to stay positive. And one of the ways I did it was looking at ways to give Charles the best rest of life as possible. I mean, we, before the issue with the uh, falling in love with his aide, we, we, traveled, we kept him involved with work, all those kind of things um, to make sure that I felt like I was doing all all I could to give him the best life possible. And for me, it was important for me to be around those positive people that picked me up. Uh, A lot of them I was still working. A lot of them were at work. Some of them were my long-term friends. And those were the things that kept me going. I've since learned lots of other positive ways to get through this, and we address those in a webinar that people can go back on your website Mm -hmm. and take a look at. Absolutely. Um, You call your book Finding Meaning with Charles. How did you find meaning through such a tragic situation? Well, first of all, Magna, thank you for mentioning my book, which is available Amazon and local bookstores, et cetera, Mm -hmm. if people want to get it. But if this concept of finding meaning came to me um, when Charles and I attended a mind-body program. At that time, it was at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital in Boston, but that program has since moved. But the instructor's name was Peg, and everyone in that program had a medical condition. Some had Parkinson's, some had arthritis, some had 
um, all other kinds of the, just these different sorts of disorders. And Peg looked at everybody in that room, and in our very first introductory session, she said, you guys all have a medical condition, and you need to accept that you have that condition. But then she said something I thought was very powerful. She said, but the way to accept it is to make meaning out of it. And so that, mm-hmm. I, I was so glad I heard that early in the disease so I could consciously try to think of all the way through, how do we make meaning out of this? And there were a number of ways that we were able to do it. Um, one was just looking for the gifts that we got from the tragedy. So people sometimes think, oh, there's no gifts in this. There's no, no positives in this. But I bet if people look that they will find them. For me, I found real strong relationships developed with Charles and his two brothers who had were close when they were very young, were estranged. Um, I'm Charles' second wife, were estranged, estranged when Charles and his uh, first wife uh, separated. And then we're slowly coming back, but boy, this disease really brought that those two boys and his mom and dad at the time much closer. That was great to see. I think another mm-hmm. way I found meaning was Charles was a phenomenal guy, a phenomenal leader, had been speaking all over the world about his leadership principles and wanted to write a book but never got to it. So the disease said, it's now or never. <laughs> and so we actually got his book paradoxes of leadership written and Mm -hmm. interesting enough i never wanted to write a book but i felt that i wanted to share the experiences that we had and so i determined to write my own book which is uh, Mm -hmm. why i why i wrote my book and ultimately that's led me to uh, retiring from my work in worksite health promotion and at blue cross to becoming a motivational speaker and sharing my story, whether it's with people that are caregivers or whether it's with business groups, and how to get through challenges, how to find positivity in the workplace, et cetera. So all of those, I think, are, are gifts that I got from, from this experience, which none of those would have happened had we not gone through this. And I just want to share a, a website Peter Davidson mm-hmm. has, um, Parkinson's, and he's got a website called giftofthehit.com, giftofthehit.com. And that's where people, like I haven't written mine yet, but I will, but other people have gone through caregiving-type situations or their own personal situation can jot their story down. It's very inspirational to read the stories and the gifts that people find in these struggles that they deal with. <laughs> Now, um, Janet, you mentioned, you talk a lot about um, a term called caregiving affirmations on your website. I read that a lot on your website. Can you, can you elaborate on this concept? Sure. Um, I guess people have different definitions of what an affirmation is to me. To me, it's very simple. It's just a positive message, just a sentence that either inspires you to reach higher or uplifts you when you're down. And it's, it's, some people call, you know, say with an affirmation, you kind of fake it till you make it, and sometimes you have to do that. But oftentimes, it's just an encouraging message that lets you know that you're not alone, that other people go through this, and, and if, if you can hang in there. So 
A um, couple right. of my affirmations that I really love for caregivers is, one is, as, it just will just give people an example of what an af- one of my affirmations might look like. I hold on to my passions because they are the essence of who I am. So that's an example of just getting people to say, I'm going to stick with the things. I'm not going to drop some of these things that are important to me that I love to do. And I'll just give you one more. I give myself credit for staying strong despite being pushed to my limits. So those are just, as you can see, they're just ways, just messages that you can feel buoyed up. And there are some free ones given on my website and also in my book. So... Um, and I do give uh, send out free weekly affirmations as well. Now, how how can caregivers use these affirmations to optimize their roles, um, you know, in their day to day existence? Right. So, um, first of all, I think it's important to affirm ourselves. If we wait for others to affirm us, we might be waiting an awful long time. So we need to take responsibility to affirm ourselves. And people can um, create their own affirmation or they can look at mine or others uh, to find ones that are meaningful to them. And then I encourage people to post them around their house or around their computer or their office. So just sticking a little sticky on your mirror in, in the bathroom is a good way to remind yourself of that affirmation. Again, to stay buoyed up to to uplift you with all that you're going on. If people want to get the free ones that I give, they can go to my website. And I think you're going to tell people what that website is before we're done. Yes, absolutely. Now, you know, in this journey, it's it's very easy to lose yourself and, um, you know, fill your days with things to do for the person that you're taking care of. How would you suggest caregivers take care of themselves during this experience? Right, taking care of yourself. I bet everybody on this line says it's impossible. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I felt a lot of ways that it was impossible to take care of myself. Um, I I just found that it was, there was no time. Um, I had been an active exerciser uh, at the time I was jogging. And uh, early in the disease, Charles also was jogging. And so we would go out and jog, but then he started to fall. And I, that my exercise ended up being holding his arm eventually while he jogged and then when he couldn't jog while he walked. And that got very slow. So after a while, I wasn't getting really a workout for myself. It was really hard. In fact, I, I can't tell everyone on the line that I was perfect at this because it was hard and I wasn't able to to get the exercise I need. And then it dawned on me that we had a treadmill in the basement that we hadn't brought up. We had to move to a house on one floor, and it was in the basement. Mm -hmm. And I I thought, gee, I can bring that up. And uh, my my family was saying, you can't leave Charles all alone. You've got to stay in the house. So that was making it harder to get out and just sneak in a run. So I brought the treadmill Mm -hmm. up. And um, before I got Charles up in the morning, I was able to get a little bit of a run in that way. And so I had to get creative and figure out how to fit it in very easily. Um, Eating was also a a hard thing. And I'm not a cook, so I lived on lean cuisines with a few extra veggies cooked in them. So that was how I got through. But 
without really having some great food, um, I ended up in, in less exercise. I ended up uh, going up a couple of dress sizes. So that was a little mm-hmm. bit disturbing. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was needed for me to take care of myself was just staying, having time to be with my girlfriends, who um, I just had such a such nice close relationships. I could talk to them about anything, and especially needed to talk to them about what I was going through with Charles. And it was initially very hard to get with them. It wasn't really until I got enough caregivers at home. And finally, when I got hospice, who provided even more coverage, was I really able to take a, a night out and uh, go to the movies or go see, um, um, have dinner with a friend. So those kind of things were very hard to do, but it took getting creative, and it mm-hmm. took also um, having enough coverage, whether I didn't have any family in the area. All my family was out of the, uh, out of the state. Um, so... You know that that became hard, uh, not having people close by to to stay with Charles while I could go out and do some of these things. So I really had to get the caregivers uh, and eventually hospice to get some time so I could could do that. So I relate to everybody that says it's hard, but there's every bit of evidence to say it's probably the most important thing as caregivers that we need to do. I uh, lead uh, three different caregiver um, support groups two online and one in person, mm-hmm. and I have had a handful of caregivers die before their loved one has died. So it's, oh. it's real. When they, yeah, when they say take care of yourself, it, it, this is real, and people really need to take it to heart and find ways to get the help they need so that they can get the exercise they need and eat well. You know, the additional challenge for many caregivers is that they have full-time jobs. How do they balance between work and caregiving? Is, is, is that balance? I know it's not easy to maintain, but can you suggest some, some ways to make it probably easier than what it is right now? Yeah, so there's all kinds of ways to look at this. Um, first of all, it's, it's hard when you are working full-time or even part-time but it's also hard to stay home. I actually, after we announced the radio show, got an email from a potential, hopefully someone who is on the uh, listening in now, saying, I think staying at home is harder because I never get a break. <laughs> at least you get a break when you go to work. And, and interesting enough, I did tell people who would say, gosh, I don't know how you're working and caring for Charles. I did say that work was my normalcy. When I went to work, it was right. like as if nothing was wrong. And so from right. a mental health standpoint, that really was, was good. But um, Charles and I had both been workaholics. We loved our work. And so we, we went in early. We stayed late. We worked on the weekends. And, of course, as Charles's disease progressed, that had to stop. So I had to end up just working my 40 hours a week and that's it. And I could only do that because I had a phenomenal staff at work who rose to the challenge. I was a leader of about, at that time, probably about 10 people. And they really rose to the challenge. So I encourage, and actually, look, in looking back, it was a good thing for them because they got to really grow in their job. So it didn't end up being a bad thing for them. It actually ended up being a good thing 
Mm-hmm. But what I had to do was really think of my priorities. And at that time, my priorities were my work, making sure that I was doing the best I could under the circumstances, and then also having some quality time with Charles. So just keeping those priorities in mind was very important for me. So I, I had, um, we were lucky. Charles had a disability insurance policy that covered an aid for the days you know, when I was working. That's mm-hmm. easy to say. We weren't always able to find AIDS. <laughs> that became a problem. But we did have that covered financially. Um, but there was a gap of time between when I got home from work and um, when those AIDS had to leave during the day. So uh, that's when you get creative. You know, I had uh, neighborhood kids that were sort of teenage kids who would come in for that like two-hour, one-to-two-hour time period. Um, I was very fortunate uh, in some ways also uh, that I could afford to pay for some other aides. I know that can be hard for people. But then other people have family clothes, so I guess there's a good balance there. My family, though, while they weren't anywhere close to us, they um, I wanted to share this with people. I thought it was really a very special thing about my family. I've got four sisters and a brother. Um, right now, all over the East Coast. They used to be all over the U.S., but all over the East Coast. But they all contributed as families $30 a month to develop a fund. And then every four to six weeks, they would send somebody up to stay with me. Uh, for a week, long Ooh. weekend or a week, so, and each one had their little talents. You know, my sister Barb was was uh, great with um, helping me do my bills. My sister Carolyn was a cook, and I already told you I wasn't. So she filled my refrigerator up. My brother Doug helped do repairs around the house. So it was really a wonderful experience. I would also mention that. There are websites like CaringBridge.com that can really be helpful in organizing help that you need amongst your friends and connections, your faith communities and and your community at large. And using those websites, I didn't use one. I didn't know about them at the time, but I have since uh, used those with other people, uh, someone else who had a similar disease to Charles and other people that have had cancer where these wonderful websites have been used to help coordinate care where you can blast out, we need someone to help you know, rake our leaves or um, we need mm-hmm. someone to help go shopping or we need someone to take the kids to, the, to school or whatever. And I really encourage folks to get on those sooner versus later so they've got that extra support of help from the community. And people want to help. So give them that opportunity. Right. That's fantastic, Janet. I have one last question for you. This is about what you think would be, you know, what's your best advice for someone just starting this experience? Um, It's it's a tough place to be in and to stand at the at the beginning of the journey and have to look forward to, you know, to difficult days. How? What would you tell them right now? I've got a couple of thoughts on that. One is to not feel guilty. You know, we are not going to be perfect as caregivers. I don't care who you are. 
you can try as hard as you can, but you're going to get impatient. You're going to get angry every now and then. You're just going to lose it. And I, I call it, we blow it. <laughs> uh, there was a time when, <laughs> there was a time when, for instance, when Charles was um, struggling to speak clearly, I could not understand him. And he got into this stretch uh, for about a month or two where he was just yelling. And it was just driving me crazy. It was so hard. Um, just, ah, ah. And I just lost it one day, and I just put my head right in his face. He was in a wheelchair at the time and just yelled as hard as I can, ah, how does that make you feel? <laughs> and right afterwards, oh, I just felt awful. I mean, I really felt bad. I knew I had blown it. But those are the kind of things you just have to ask for forgiveness and move on. Don't hold on to them. I have talked to caregivers who, for instance, there's one that comes to my mind. Her husband had a, um, I think he had Lewy body dementia, and he had been paranoid, and he had just threatened that he was going to kill her. And he he tried to tackle with a knife. Now, she eventually, with her kids, got him into their lake home, and they oversaw his his sight, his, his care. But she felt guilty that he was at the lake home and not with her, that she was feeling she should be the, the wife and doing the work, but he was going to kill her. So it's funny how this guilt that we have from either our religious upbringing or just our ethics that we can't, we can't shake. But I want to get people right. to think about that and give up on that guilt. The other thing I would say is that transitions, to new losses can be hard, but you will get over them. Let me give you an, experience, an example. Charles, in order to keep going to work, was going to have to have an aide, but he had been complaining to me, I don't want aides. I don't, you know, I, you've got to be the one. I don't want anybody else. Well, his work told him, you have to have an aide or you can't keep coming in. So that allowed me to get an aide. And, you know, the first day he came home and he said, oh, She was just a child, and she took me to the bathroom. You know, there was this new nursing, young nursing (laughs) student who was his aide that day. So complain, complain for the first couple of days. But you know what? After about two weeks, it was like normal. No complaints, no problems. Things work like clockwork. Had that same experience when it was getting him to use a uh, wheelchair. Oh, did he fight. But once he was in it, we got over the hump. So I, I think as folks that are listening and think about the losses and the next transition that you have, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really terrible. There's going to be fights or yelling or anger. But once you get over it, once you do it and you stick with it, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, it evens out and it gets better. So um, just go for it and know that it will get better. And then I guess the last thing as I look back on my caregiving experience is that I really had to think about balancing Charles's wanting to be independent and my wanting him to be safe. And I think as I look back, I probably was too concerned that I restricted him too much where I could have let go a little bit more, given him a little bit more independence, um, but there's a fine line between independence and safety. So it's, that's a hard one, but as I look back, I wish I had allowed a little more independence, um, still keeping safe. So I don't know if that right. helps, but those are things that come to my mind. 
Thank you so much, Janet. It's been an absolute pleasure having you as a guest. And I want to um, let our audience members know that um, they can visit your website to get more information about the work you do. Um, you can learn more about Janet Edmondson at www.janetedmondson.com. I'll spell that. That's J-A-N-E-T-E-D-M-U-N-S-O-N.com. You can find free caregiving affirmations on the website, and you can also get information about the book that she's written about her late husband, Charles. I'd like to thank our audience today for tuning in, and we would love for you to join us next time on Tuesday, September 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern for our Caregiver Speak radio show. This will be hosted by our caregiving expert, Marjorie Pax, and she will be speaking to Dr. Rick Bermelier, professor at Rollins College and Dr. John Guarneri, past president of medical staff at Florida Hospital, about how caregivers can take charge of their caregiving by using leadership principles. To learn more about eCare Diary and our upcoming shows, visit www.ecarediary.com. Registration is free and gives you immediate access to your personal care diary tool. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. My Twitter address is ecare underscore diary. Thank you once again, Janet. Have a wonderful day, everyone. My pleasure. Thank you, Meghna.